here this morning, graduated from high school in these last couple of weeks, or at least hoping that you're going to graduate on Thursday night from Butler, I think it is, right? How many of you here? You're here this morning? Stand up so I can see you real quick. Stand up. Stay standing for a minute. All right, we got some here, here. Stay standing. All right, here. Thanks. You graduated from high school already? I am so old. How about college graduates? Any here this morning? No college graduates? Where? All right, just doesn't want to stand up, right? Yeah, I figured. Master's, doctorate, what a great challenge that many of you have taken on. When you realize and understand the challenges you've taken on or the challenges you've come through or what is about to unfold in your life, you take out your sermon notes this morning, I guarantee you at some point in that journey, you will have already had to wrestle through this question or are wrestling through it now. And not only for high school, college graduates, those who are going into the workplace, those of you who are already in the workplace, those of you who are going to a secular campus, who've grown up in church and grown up in a church environment, now all of a sudden you feel like God's led you to a campus that doesn't embrace Christ, or at some point or the other in that journey going to have to answer the question that is in the beginning of your sermon notes this morning. How do I, as a follower of Christ, live out my faith in an environment that doesn't embrace it? Many of you here in the audience this morning, I hope, are wrestling through that question every day of your life. Because you're in an environment, workplace, ministry, wherever that may be, where you're serving in a secular campus, where you're trying to stand for Jesus at your workplace, or on your college campus, or this fall on your college campus, are going to be challenged and faced with that question. And my hope, if you've not already answered it, you will answer it during this series during the month of June. How do I, as a follower of Christ, live out my faith in a world that doesn't embrace it? That every once in a while, and sometimes more often than not, seems even hostile to my belief in Jesus. Any of you have ever faced that issue? Where the people around you really don't like that you know Jesus and don't even want you to talk about it. They don't want you to bring your Bible to work. They don't want you to mention it. They don't want to know what you do on the weekend. They don't want to know where you go to church. I don't want to hear about your God. Some of you face that in family reunions. <laughs> you're going to have one this summer at some point or the other. They know you're a follower of Christ and they talk to you or maybe somebody else is talking to you or maybe it's a family member who's talking about your journey with Jesus and you share that and you'll have a family member who walks away or maybe even to your face would say, look, you keep your religion to yourself. Now, it may not be that hostile. It may not be in your face kind of way. You know, in some other cases, they just walk away from you. And you feel like in an environment that you're in, as a follower of Christ, you're alone. In whatever field that may be, it could be the military, it could be a teacher, it could be a coworker, somebody in your sphere of influence, and many times you are faced with that challenge, how do I live out my faith in a world that doesn't embrace it? Followers of Jesus Christ are monotheistic. We believe in one God, the God of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. A lot of the world is pluralistic. All roads lead to heaven. We all follow God. Everybody has their different version of God, but we're all worshiping the same God. So all paths lead to him. Whether it's Buddhism or Confucianism or whatever that may be, we're all worshiping the same God. And many of you face that on a regular basis. Now, there are some places that are also polytheistic. A lot of gods, various gods. American Indian culture had a lot of different gods. The God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the wind. Indonesia, where many of my friends and some of them that you know as well, 
are in a culture that believes in over 1,000 gods. Now, can you imagine trying to explain the God of creation and one God to a context that has multiple gods over a thousand different gods. Somewhere along the way, and I hope in this series at least, if you've not settled that answer, how do I live out my faith? How do I take a stand for Jesus? Not in their face, not antagonistic, but take a stand for Jesus in a world, in a culture, in an environment, in an institution, or even the government around me that doesn't really believe in that. I've been watching politics for over 50 years. Now, it's hard to believe because some of you are saying, well, you're only 51 yourself. So I know it's hard for you to believe. This is one of the most fascinating fields that I've ever seen in all of my years of watching politics. Obviously, especially the Republican side. And a lot of them are talking about their faith in Jesus. One of my favorite is Marco Rubio, who wouldn't necessarily follow all the principles that I would out of the word of God as an evangelical believer. But I love listening to the conversations that are being had out there among a number of those who are running for that particular office. And for the first time in a long time, the issue of my faith is coming up over and over and over again. It does and has certainly in the last number of decades or in the last couple of decades, but to me, more noticeable than not. And the media is having a heyday with that. Now, again, depending on who you listen to, but they're having a heyday with that. And so when I look at this subject a few weeks ago and I was saying, God, during the month of June, I want a series that stands on its own. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off for vacation in July. We're finishing up with Acts. What do you want me to talk about? And I mean, as quick as I almost asked that question, he said, I want you to go to the book of Daniel. Because what you're going to find with all the things going on in our environment, with the decisions the Supreme Court is wrestling through right now, that World Magazine on their cover said is a domino, and they listed that decision about what marriage is all about, how you define it, which God, by the way, defined 6,000 years ago. Now we're wrestling through that decision. That is just one of many dominoes that are going to be impacted by the decision that they make over a number of bases. And when you look at that in the field of uh, candidates that are discussing that issue, the issue of Christianity being under the, not only under the gun, but literally people being beheaded for Christ in places around the world, how much more relevant will it be if we talk about that very subject in this context? So over the next few weeks, we're going to, as best as I know how, and following the listening of the voice of the Spirit as best as I know how, we're going to discuss all of those issues within this context in just this one month. So I want you to be a part of the journey. I want you to invite someone. If you hear them talking about what's going on in the world around us and the impact of those decisions, be a great platform for you to say, why don't you come to church? Our pastor happens to be discussing some of these very issues. What do we do with ISIS? How do we deal with the fact that Christians around the world are being persecuted for their faith? How do we understand that? We're going to be talking about that during this month. If you have any heroes in your life, and I hope you do, I hope a lot of them are biblical heroes. I've got a lot in my life. There are a lot of people around me that I enjoy watching people I've uh, had in my life who have been great mentors of mine. got a father that I love and adore who is just fascinating to me, 86 years old. I called him on the other day. I said, what's dad doing? Been weed whacking for two days. I'm going, I weed whack for an hour and I got to take 10 Advil when I come in. Here's an 86 and a half year old guy weed whacking for two days. I said, has he ever heard of Roundup? Just spray this stuff. What are you doing? But he constantly, continually works hard, loves Jesus, led more. He's led personally more people to Christ than I have. 
He lives out his faith in a context that doesn't always embrace it. And people around him that don't even like who we are as far as not only believers in Christ, but our ethnic background, believe it or not. I know I look like a Smith, but I'm not. Um, I'm, a, I'm a hunky. I'm a Chrysic. I'm a Quotation. And believe it or not, in that environment where we grew up, they didn't like us at all. 65 years later, there's two neighbors that still hate my dad. And this man loves like crazy. When you look at the book of Daniel, hopefully he's one of your heroes because he's certainly one of mine. Picture this in your mind. If any of you have 15 to 17-year-olds and they were to say to you, I'm going to take three of my best friends, we're going to Vegas for the summer, what would you say? You're out of your mind. No church connection. Uh, We're just doing our own thing. We're going on our own. Probably won't call you much. Not going to take a cell phone. We're just going to Vegas for the summer. Would you let them go? How many of you who have a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old would say, that's awesome. Go do it. (laughs) These guys are in Vegas. They're in Babylon. One of the wicked secularized context in all of the world at that particular time who embrace a number of gods who really don't believe in the biblical God, who have nothing to do with the biblical God. These guys as teenagers don't decide to go. They get pulled into it. They're captured and taken into that context and put in an unusual environment and they will always stand. Daniel and three of his best friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which by the way, I've never heard anybody call their kids that. Daniel, yes, not the other three are in an environment like that where as teenagers, they have a decision to make. Will the God that I know and the God that I followed and the God that I believe in walk with me in some of the most deplorable circumstances that I find myself? And will I make it even through that? And you're going to see that in the book of Daniel. (coughs) Four themes in your sermon notes this morning. God is in control. All the way through these next few weeks, you're going to see that. Secondly, the power of convictions. Believe it or not, it is possible. It is possible to live out your faith in a godless society. It is possible to live for Jesus in a society that doesn't embrace it at all, that sometimes is even hostile to it, to really honestly be salt and light, to not have to shine it in your face. You know the one thing you don't want is someone has a powerful flashlight to shine it in your face. You just want to show them the way. And when Jesus said, you're to be salt and light in the world around you that doesn't embrace Christianity, that's what he wants us to be. I want you to show them the way. I don't want you to point it in their face and blind them with a light. I want you to show them the way. It is possible as a follower of Jesus Christ in the middle of a godless society that doesn't embrace your values, that doesn't like your Jesus, that doesn't love who you stand for, it is possible to live out your values, believe it or not, in that context And every so often, so shine with Jesus, they're going to come to you and say, okay, I've got to ask you, what makes you the way you are? Because, man, I've been in your face for years, and you stand strong. You don't intimidate me with it. You don't push it in me. You don't push it on me. You just stand for Jesus everywhere you go. I've got to know, what on earth makes you so different? I'm going to talk about it a little bit next Sunday morning. Just so you know, and maybe you already know this, if you've, but if you've not read the end of the book of the Bible, the world's not going to get any better. Is that surprising some of you? 
It didn't surprise you? It's not going to get better. Matter of fact, Paul said, I just want you to know, Timothy, in the last days, it's going to get horrible. I mean, people aren't going to embrace your faith at all. Kids are going to turn away from their parents. It's going to get really ugly. And I just want you to know that. And I'm telling you now so that you fall deeply in love with Jesus with everything you've got. Because you're going to have to live out that. Now, if Paul said that to Timothy and is 2,000 years old, how relevant do you think that is to the environment in which we live? Daniel stands as one of those in the middle of that 2,600 years before Christ, so 2,600 years ago, as a model for somebody that if I read his story correctly and hear and understand the environment in which he's in, could have been written yesterday. That's what I love about the Word of God. It's that relevant. Three is obviously the challenge to be in the world but not of the world, that God is faithful even in the middle of unusual circumstances. Chapter 1, verse 1. You're in the book of Daniel now. You've got your Bibles, so turn them there. Open them up. iPad, iPhone, whatever. Easier for you. I like a Bible because I write in it a lot. Uh, But everywhere I travel, I take the iPad so it's easier to read and uh, always carry with me. So whatever's best for you. And I have your sermon notes, so please take those out carefully and walk through it with me. Number one, verse one is a historical perspective. This is what happens, okay? In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In other words, captured it and took it in to their environment. The second piece there is in verse two, and that is the theological perspective. First, the historical, this is what happened. This is secondly, why? The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God, they carried them off to the temple of the god, small g in Babylonia, and put his treasures in the house of that god. In the middle of this environment, you have two things that are taking place. They're in your notes. One is a biblical prophecy. The other is a biblical principle. The prophecy is this. 100 years before this took place, Isaiah said, look, this is going to happen. You're going to go into captivity. And obviously now you're seeing it fleshed out. The second piece of that is the biblical principle. And that is this. God is faithful in his blessings and in his judgments. They're given to us according to our obedience and disobedience to the will of God. God is faithful in his blessings and in his, dis- in his judgments. They're given to us in accordance to our obedience or disobedience to his will. When we think of the faithfulness of God, we tend to think of it only in the positive side. God is faithful to bless his people, and he is. God is faithful to bless his people, and he is. But if you study any of the Old Testament, you'll notice that God is also faithful in his judgment. In Deuteronomy, he says this, I want to bless you, so obey me. I want you to live in a blessable position, so obey me. Follow my principles. I've given them there to you for a reason. I've given you boundaries and guidelines. I'm really here to help you. Even in the context of marriage, don't sleep around. Stay with this faithful partner that I've given you. I'm giving it to you because I love you. In this context of sexuality, don't have sex before marriage. I've got something really special for you reserved in marriage. I'm not a killjoy. I have the best in mind for you. I have the most amazing gift you can imagine within the context of marriage. But you have to stay within these guidelines. If you don't, there's a price to pay. He's very honest about that all the way through Scripture. God is not only faithful in his blessings, he's also faithful in his judgment. He said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, there's a price to pay. He comes to his children in Israel and Deuteronomy and he said, look, I've said before you life and death. I beg you, choose life. They're right in front of you. 
This path is going to lead to life. This path is going to lead to death. I beg you to choose life. Jesus says the exact same thing in another context. One road leads to eternal life. The other road leads to destruction. I came so that you could understand the way to eternal life so that you don't go that way because I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, it's only going to lead to destruction. His love is unconditional. His blessings are conditional on obedience. God loves you and I like crazy. There's nothing you'll ever do, no matter how hard you try, when we celebrate communion, which is the blood of Jesus, the body of Christ, given so that we can have eternal life. There's nothing you ever did or you'll ever do to deserve this. That's why it's so unbelievably special that I don't take it for granted, that I enjoy and understand what he's done for me, even when I was running from him, even if I turned my back on him, even when I turned my back on him, he died for me. That love of God is unconditional. Nothing you can do to deserve it, nothing you can ever do to earn it. But his blessings are. And many times in the process of life, we forget that. God all the way through scripture put the blessings first and the curses last. In a lot of other covenants, with other kingdoms, the the curses come first. Most kings rule their kingdom with a threat of terror. And intimidating their subjects, God says, I want to bless you. I really want to bless you. I want you to be a blessed people. But if you choose not to follow me, there are consequences for disobedience. Anyone or any church that teaches that God has only good things happening for you, and if bad things happen to you, it's because of the devil or someone else has a real poor understanding of the nature of God and the principles of the Old Testament. Anybody who says or teaches that God only wants good things for you and if bad things happen to you, it must be as a result of something else, really doesn't understand the context of the Old Testament when God says, I really do have some amazing things for you. And they come as a process of obedience. But with this obedience is going to come judgment. And I want you to know that now so that you walk the right path. Because the children of Israel disobeyed, God withdrew his hand of blessing and allow them to enter into captivity over and over again in the Old Testament. Had I been God, and I'm sure you're thankful that I'm not God, I so I am. But had I been God, isn't there a part of you, and if you had been him, that would want to go to the children of Israel when they're in captivity saying, so how's this independence working out for you? I mean, all, you knew my boundaries, you knew my limitations, you knew all the things I wanted to do, and you decided to go your own way. And I told you, if you go your own way, you're going to end up here. And you went there anyway. How's that working out? So you like this captivity? You like being slaves? But he doesn't. He comes and offers life and salvation and forgiveness and grace. But when we decide to do our own thing, walk our own way, ignore God, or know his boundaries, it's even worse sometimes, knowing his boundaries and limitations and still decide to go our own way, there is a price to pay. Three parts of the story that you're going to see this morning. One is his plan, Nebuchadnezzar's plan, that is. He ordered his chief official to bring into the king's service all the young people, the royal family and nobility, men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for great, every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. His plan was simple. I'm not going to subdue Israel with an army. He could have, I suppose. Could have just brought it in and slaughtered him. His plan was simple conniving and brilliant in a negative sense. I'm going to indoctrinate the youth. I'm going to take the young. 
I'm going to expose them to everything they can possibly see about the world around me that is amazing. Not only was Babylon a city that didn't obey God, it was an amazing place. He said, I'm going to show them the best of everything. And I'm going to take them while they're young and I'm going to indoctrinate them in all of that. And my hope is when they see how awesome and fun sin and sexuality and all those things are, they're going to say, okay, well, I have a whole lot more fun here. I'm not going back there. That's a brilliant plan. And it's the exact same plan Satan's had for years and years and centuries and millenniums. If I can just get the young. Why do you think we spend so much time and energy and investment at Community Alliance Church in our children's and youth ministry? Why do you think that is? Because we understand that if we help them understand who they are in Christ and what God offers them and we partner with you as parents because you understand the priority of that and you make sure they're here. You don't give them a thousand different options out there. You want to go to church? Fine. If you don't, well, you're seven. You ought to make up your own mind for spiritual things. Who in the world does that? None of you I know, but there are a lot of parents out there that does. You know, they, they need to make up their own mind. There are eight now. He needs to decide whether he wants to go to church or not. Seriously? Why do you think we spend so much time and energy in children and youth ministries? Because we understand this principle. If we don't indoctrinate them, if you don't help them as a parent, if you don't make sure they get in the context of ministries that we have to offer to help them deepen their walk with God in a Bible school that's going to talk to them specifically about the relevancy of the word of God, the world's going to put a stamp on them. And it's going to tell them what to believe and how to believe and how to live. And it's going to show them more fun than they can possibly embrace And you're going to have a hard time if they've been in that world for a long period of time and no clue to Christianity and what it offers and what the kingdom is and what Jesus offers and what future is all about. They're going to follow that one. 60 years ago or 50 years ago, whatever it was, Nikita Khrushchev said, you give me a kid to his five, he'll be a communist for life. Religions all over the world say the same thing. Why do you think ISIS and so many other ones are recruiting the young? That's what gangs do all over cities, all over the country. They entice them while they're young. If I can show them that they're going to make a whole lot more money selling drugs than doing that, what do you think they're going to like? If I can get them while they're young, I have them for life. And so when you say, well, it's not that important. We've got a lot of other things going on this summer. We won't get that involved in church. You know, whatever the list may be. I'm just saying, tell your friends that because you're here and I know I'm preaching to the choir. But I'm telling you, This is so unbelievably critical to their lifestyle and to the world in which we live, written 2,600 years ago. This is relevant as it was written yesterday because the world out there is going to saturate them with everything that looks good. Satan will never, ever tell them on the end of that is a hook that's going to kill you. It will say, this is awesome. Come on, just a little bit. Taste a little bit. That's what everything does. Nebuchadnezzar tried to isolate them, remove them from Jewish culture, the teaching of the word of God, and relationships in the family of God. Going back again to the connectivity of the family of God, there's no way on the planet you're going to know a thousand people that come to Community Alliance Church. That's why we emphasize small groups and life groups and all those kind of ways that you can connect with one another, ministry opportunities where you're growing and deepening your walk with each other and with God. 
so that you don't feel like you're alone. Good night. I don't know how to deal with this life out there, but I'm still trying to do it on my own when there are so many opportunities where you can connect with others in the family of God and say, look, man, the, I'm, this week, my boss says, you talk about Jesus one more time or you bring your Bible to work. You're going to get, the list is endless of all of those things where you can say, would you just pray with me? Even if the answers aren't always there about what to do, can you just pray with me? Because man, the world I'm living in, my son is going off to college this fall in a secular campus is going to be inundated with this stuff every day. And I just need to know there are other parents dealing with that that I can pray with. Doesn't it make sense? And what Nebuchadnezzar said, if I can remove them from all of that influence, I've got a chance to keep them as Babylonians forever and they'll never go back to faith in God and they'll never go back to following him. That's brilliant in a negative way. And so that's why connectivity and ministering to children is so unbelievably critically important. At the end of verse 4, he tried to indoctrinate them in all the issues of the Babylonian culture. In verse 5, he, the daily amount of food and wine, he wanted to train them for three years. In verse 6 and 7, he changed their names. He knew how important the name was for identity in the Jewish culture. And that's the reason he changed all of their names. So they would, in a sense, even in the context of their name with the Jewish culture, lose their identity. He knew an important principle. The way we think about ourselves, the way we think about God, the way we think about life will determine how we act. As a man thinks, so he does. Jesus said the same thing. The way we think about ourselves, I'm not valuable, I'm not important. God doesn't care, no one loves me. The way we think about God, he's out there somewhere. He really isn't interested in my day-to-day issues. The way we think about life itself, it's here, it's lived out. Take all you can, get all you can. You only got one shot at this. Enjoy every moment of it. Everything we think about, God, ourselves, and life itself will determine how we live. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that. And that's exactly what you face and your children face in the world around them, which is why life in Christ and helping them get grounded is critical. Look at Daniel, verse 8. One of the verses that I learned when I first came to faith in Christ when I was 14, 13 years old. In the middle of all of that, Daniel said, you know what? I'm not. I I made a decision that I'm not going to defile myself. I'm resolved to standing firm to my convictions. What I love about Daniel is that he made up his own mind immediately. Notice his response. Notice his resolve in your sermon notes and that he made up his mind immediately. You don't see Daniel going to the guys and say, okay, there's a lot of decisions out here we got to make. What would you guys do? I mean, uh, I mean would you go to that movie? Would you do that? Would you, would you whatever, the list would be endless. What, what, what do you think? What, what, what should I do? Daniel said, this is what I am doing. Do you realize how phenomenal that is for a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old to do? Because he was grounded in his convictions and he knew what they were and he knew those were the things that he had to stand on in the midst of all the uncertainty of life. He made them immediately. He understood. You know what it's like. And um, again, maybe talking to the choir, but maybe you do know. If you've ever been in a situation, a compromising situation where you should have said something, You shouldn't have listened to something. You shouldn't have passed on something. And you decided not to do anything or not to say anything and listen to it or pass it on. Do you know how hard it is to now take a stand the second time that happens? If you don't take a stand the first time it happens, I shouldn't listen to this. I don't want to repeat that. It's trash hurting somebody else. 
I don't want to go there. I don't want to watch that. I don't want to listen to that. If you don't take that stand on the front end, it's really hard to do it the second time that incident occurs. And just in case you wonder, it will. It will always come back at you. And here it is again. And the harder you take those stands, or the less you take those stands, the harder it will be to make those decisions. The issue of temptation and compromise has to be settled on the front end. It is extremely difficult to do it in the middle. Tendency for young people to say, well, you know, I want to experience a lot of life, and I got a lot of life to live, so, you know, I'm going to go out and live it, sow my wild oats. When I get around 30-something, I'll make some convictions. By then, you may be dead. As honest as I know how. Or in a hole you can't get out of. But I hear that all the time. I understand what you're saying. I understand, sure, I, I hear my parents, but I just want to experiment with life. I want to get out there and live life. When I get to be 25 or 30, I'll come back to church. Uh, you know, I'll stand for strong things and do all this thing. I just as lovingly as I don't know how you may be dead without Christ. We're in a hole you can't get out of. If we haven't settled our convictions, which are the anchors of our life, when the storms of life blow, we'll go in any direction the wind blows. Whatever feels good, sounds good, that's exactly what our culture does now. Whatever's right for you, whatever's right for me. Who's going to tell me what's right and wrong? Where are the real absolutes in life? It's exactly what the world, if you don't have convictions, you'll go in any direction. And not mine. Or not necessarily even your parents. Develop your own convictions. What will I say yes to? What will I say no to? How many times we just want the list? Just give me a list. It'd be a whole lot easier, and a lot of churches do that. You want a list? Here's a list. These are the do's, these are the don'ts. Do these, and you'll be all right. God has the big ten. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't sleep around. I've got something reserved for you only in the context of marriage. And all of those things. A lot of other things, he says, Paul says to, to, in, in Romans, what do you think is the right thing to do? Ask me. Walk with me through that journey. Let me help you develop some really strong convictions. I'm not going to give you a whole list because I want you to walk through the process of understanding how important that is. Let me give you one example. Hundreds that I could give you. One example. God says in the word of God, don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. Which means don't get married to a non-believer. Your body, so every one of us are body, soul, and spirit. So in the context of marriage, you give your body to someone else, you give your soul, who you are, your personality, to someone else, the spirit side of you, one whole third of you that's meant to connect with God and with your partner doesn't connect. So a whole third of your being isn't connected with God or certainly isn't connected with your partner because you want that relationship. So God says, I want you to not do that because I have something special for you within the context of marriage. So if you know that, and you understand that as a conviction, then you won't get head over heels in a relationship with a non-believer. And then in the middle of that, when the hormones are racing, try to say, oh, wait a minute, I probably shouldn't do this. Because when the hormones are racing and you're head over heels in love with somebody who doesn't love your God, it's a little bit difficult then to shift it around. And then you'll spend the rest of your life saying, well, I want to come to church, but he won't. I really do want to come to church, but she doesn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. It was a, prom or a promise keepers. Man up yesterday. It was a great conference. Man, you ought to go next year if you're a guy. And I sat with a guy at lunch who just had come to faith in Christ that morning. Now, that's different, but he, 
understood the challenges he's going to have now as he gets home and tries to share with his wife as a non-believer what decision he made. He didn't have the opportunity to make that on the front end. He made it now, and it's a great decision for Jesus, but he understood the challenges. If you know that now, and I'm as clear as I can tell you to tell you about how important it is to have a believer and knows Christ, and so you share the whole elements of you, the third of you, with someone else, then dating that person and getting heavily involved is now setting you up for a path of very difficult circumstances forever. Well, I want to bring the kids to church, but he doesn't want me to. I really want to get involved, but she doesn't want to at all. The challenges are enormous, so that's why God says, look, I want to help you in this. So let me give you some guidance. And you as a believer, a follower of Christ, have to decide, will I do that or not? Daniel took a stand, and he said, I am not afraid. I will do what I need to do. I understand the challenge. I understand what you're asking, but test me in this, verses 10 to 13, and just give me a chance to prove what my God can do. Next Sunday morning, we're going to continue in this journey, and you'll see God's plan as it begins to unfold. It is a fascinating piece. In Jeremiah 28 and 29, God clearly predicted exactly what was going to happen in this context and exactly what he was asking them to do in regard to the culture around them, to never lose their identity, but to constantly engage the culture and not push it away or pray against it, but pray for it. And you'll see how critical and important that is. God paved the way and gave us life in his son. The word Emmanuel, when God says, I'm going to give you my life, I'm going to give you my son, and he gave it to Joseph and Mary, and he said his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. The translation of that is God tabernacled among us. You know what that means? He settled down. He came to us and showed us how to live this life in the middle of an environment that really wasn't fully embraced in who Jesus was. And a religious world had their own idea of what he ought to be. He said, I'm going to show you how to live life. And he tabernacled among us, and he gave us life. This morning, you're going to hold two elements in your hand. They're going to be passed out in a moment. Brandon's going to play. And you'll see in the same tray, if you've never been here before, is a bread and a cup. Take one of each. Help the person around you. And then during these five moments alone, I want you to just spend some time saying, Lord, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's the qualification for this. And it's a matter of saying, Lord, I, I'm try, I've tried to live this life on my own, and I want to invite you into my life. I want to give my life over to you. I want you to run my life. I haven't been doing real good. And I want you to live in me. And that's a, an opportunity for you to embrace Jesus as a Savior. That's the starting point. And that's the requirement here. But if you've done that, you can do it right now where you are. If you've done it, I want you to hold these elements in your hand. And I want you to say, God, you gave me life. Give me forgiveness and grace and love and everything I could ever imagine in you. And you place me in an environment that's really hard. People around me don't like you. They don't want me talking about it. My family doesn't want to embrace it. The workplace, my school, nothing. I need to know how to live this life that you've called me to, that you've offered me in Jesus, that I've embraced in a world around me. I really, you did it, and I want you to do it through me. Spend some time in these few moments in prayer with him about that. Father, I thank you. Uh, gentlemen, come. For all that you've done and the gifts of life. And as we hold these elements and embrace them and partake of them, in a few moments, we are, again, grateful for the values that we have, 
the life that you've called us to. We need your help in living it out. In Jesus' name. Would you wait till everyone is served? And then I'll come back up and follow us through.